0: Welcome to the Practical Christian Podcast. I'm Travis Britton, a former rocket scientist turned digital missionary. We're here to bring you the bite-sized tips and strategies you need to become an effective Christian. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's jump into it. Hey, and welcome back to our four-part series on the book of 1 Corinthians. You are listening to part number 3. In the last episode, we talked about the issue of divisions in the church in Corinth that the disciples there had kind of sectioned themselves off into these different cliques depending on their background and how they related to one another and really the dangers that, that you know, we can fall into if we're not careful. And we're going to continue learning together as we pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter, so don't worry about that. And then like last week, we'll dig into the William Barclay Commentary to hear from a Bible scholar, his perspective on this chapter and what it means, and then we'll draw some practicals. All right, so let's go ahead and pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse one. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore. Food offered to idols, kind of issues anymore, at least in the Western world. But that does not mean that there is not some great nuggets that we can pull from this particular passage for our present circumstance. So let's go ahead and read the William Barclay commentary and see what else we can learn. We have seen how it was scarcely possible to live in any Greek city and not to come up against the problem of what to do about eating meat that had been offered as a sacrifice to idols. It was a problem that arose every day. There were some people among the Corinthians to whom the matter was no problem. They held that their superior knowledge had taught them that the gods worshipped by so many simply did not exist, and that therefore it was possible for a Christian to eat meat that had been offered to idols without a qualm. In reality, Paul has two answers to that. One does not come until chapter 10, verse 20 in that passage, Paul makes it clear that although he quite agreed that the popular Greek and Roman gods did not exist, he felt certain that the spirits and the demons did exist and that they were behind the idols and were using them to seduce men and women from the worship of the true God. In the present passage, he uses a much simpler argument. He says that in Corinth, there were people who all their lives up until now had had really believed in the gods of Greece and Rome, and they could not quite rid themselves of a lingering belief that an idol really was something, although it was a false something. Whenever they eat meat offered to idols, they had qualms of conscience. They could not help it. Instinctively, they felt that it was wrong. So, Paul argues that if you say that there is absolutely no harm in eating meat offered to idols— you are really hurting and bewildering the conscience of these people who had a simpler view of the situation. His final argument is that even if a thing is harmless for you, when it hurts someone else, it must be given up. For Christians must never do anything which causes someone else to stumble. All right, I'm going to read that again because that really is the point of this whole passage, and I think it's something that is easy to gloss over. Paul's final argument is that even if a thing is harmless for you, when it hurts someone else, it must be given up. For Christians must never do anything which causes someone else to stumble. And let's continue reading here. In this passage, which deals with something which is far outside our experience, there are three great principles which are eternally valid. Number one, what is safe for one person may be quite unsafe for another. It has been said, and it is blessedly true, that God is his own secret stairway into every heart, but it is equally true that the devil has his own secret and subtle stairway into every heart as well. We may be strong enough to resist some temptation, but it may well be that someone else is not. Something may be no temptation whatever to us, but it may be a violent temptation to someone else. Therefore, in considering whether we will or will not do anything, we must think not only of its effect on us, but of its effect on others as well. Number two, Nothing ought to be judged solely from the point of view of knowledge. Everything ought to be judged from the point of view of love. The argument of the Corinthians who are more advanced in their thinking was that they knew better than to regard an idol as anything. Their knowledge had taken them far past that. There is always a certain danger in knowledge. It tends to make people arrogant and to make them feel superior and look down unsympathetically on those who are not as far advanced as themselves. Knowledge which does this is not true knowledge, but the consciousness of intellectual superiority is a dangerous thing. Our conduct should always be guided not by the thought of our own superior knowledge, but by sympathetic and considerate love for others. And it may well be that for their sake, we must refrain from doing and saying certain otherwise legitimate things. And then number three, this leads to the greatest truth of all. No one has any right to indulge in a pleasure or to demand a liberty which may be destructive to someone else. One person may have the strength of mind and and the will to keep a particular pleasure in its proper place. For that person, one course of action may be safe enough. But in whatever we do, we should not only think of ourselves, we must also think of those who are weaker. An indulgence, which may be the ruin of someone else, is not a pleasure, but a sin. All right, so let's talk about how this applies to us. Because this really is like graduate level discipleship. We are moving beyond the black and the white of does Jesus command it or not? And we're starting to get into shades of gray where Paul, even when addressing this very issue, has multiple answers. And depending on who he's speaking to and where they're coming from, he's gonna give them a different answer of what the correct righteous godly thing is to do. Confused yet? Don't worry, we're going to sort it out. Uh, The big takeaway from this passage, and as it relates to us, it is a fantastic reminder for us to analyze how we operate in the world. Like, does this type of thinking that Paul is describing, how you are self-analyzing the things that you are doing, the things that you are saying, and the impact that they have on your brothers and sisters in Christ, is that type of thinking even crossing your radar on a day-to-day basis. Because this really is the heart of the gospel, pouring yourself out, denying yourself for the sake of others. But that idea that you would give up your quote-unquote rights for someone else's benefit goes sharply against what our culture says, right? The culture that you and I live in is very focused on your rights, the things that you are due, the things that you can say or not say, do or not do, that is your right to do regardless of what anyone else thinks. This is particularly true when it comes to the Western world and the belief in the individual above all else, right? Not letting anyone trample your rights. And we can often define that idea Your rights as a person or as a citizen of a country, as the things the Bible doesn't expressly prohibit that are given to you by the country that you live in, right? So, here in the United States, a very popular one is the right that you have to free speech, to be able to say what you want whenever you want. And as long as you're not directly causing harm, like saying fire in a crowded building, then you are protected by the government. And anyone that would assert, that you potentially should not say whatever you want whenever you want is an infringement on those rights. And to even suggest that you should consider not saying something for the benefit of someone else is an affront, <laughs> is is an insult. Like, how could you take away my right to do that or say that? Is this resonating at all? I know it certainly does with me. And so this really counterintuitive idea that Paul is laying out in the context of meat that was sacrificed to idols. And some Christians were like, that idol does not exist. So whether it was sacrificed to the idol or not, I feel totally fine eating this steak. And then other Christians that had just come out of the world remember that a lot of the church in Corinth were these Gentiles. They'd grown up in this culture of Corinth where it was a fair game and you worshiped, you know, Aphrodite and you, you worshiped the, the sensual pleasures of life. And now you're coming out of that, and you're seeing other Christians, in your mind, taking part in the worship of these idols, and you're like, whoa, 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 what is going on? What is happening? And then feeling that conflict of, should I give in to my past habits of engaging religiously with the Greek and the Roman gods, or do I devote myself wholeheartedly to the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity. And so you create that unnecessary conflict simply because your knowledge has overridden your desire to love your brothers and your sisters. Does that make sense? So the challenge for us is being willing to give up the things that we can do, that the country you live in gives you the right to do, that normal people would expect you to be able to do in order to love your brothers and sisters. An example of this would be if you are living in a house with other Christians, other disciples, and you're above the drinking age in whatever country you're living in, and one of the roommates struggles with alcohol, whether they grew up with that as an issue in their family or they have alcoholism and they really wrestle with that, the other roommates will Put down as a rule of the house that this is a dry house. No alcohol will ever enter the front door of this place that we all live and share together. Even though the other roommates could be totally fine with alcohol and be able to say no and to stop whenever they need to. But for the sake of that one person for who it is a real struggle, they're like, you know what? We're all going to sacrifice. We're all going to deny ourselves in order to make sure that our brother or our sister is taken care of is that your mindset? right? Getting real practical here. Is that your mindset? Is that your perspective? Is that how you operate in the world? Is your decision-making self-focused? What am I allowed to do? What do I feel comfortable doing? What do I feel like I have a right to do? Or is it primarily others-focused? How will the people around me be impacted by this decision? How will the people around me be impacted by the things that I say, whether in person or especially on social media? How will the people around me be impacted or affected by my decisions? And if you can shift your perspective to that second one, where you are no longer thinking about your rights as a free person in Christ, but rather the obligation of love to your brothers and sisters to deny yourself for their benefit, that truly is the selfless love that God wants us to have for each other. So while we don't necessarily have to answer the question of, is it okay to eat this hamburger that was sacrificed to a foreign idol that doesn't exist, we most certainly need to learn the lesson of having empathy for one another that Paul is really stressing to the church in Corinth. That's it for today. Don't forget to take advantage of this week's free resource by clicking the link in the show notes, and be sure to share this episode with your ministry leader, a person in your small group, or just a friend from church. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll talk to you soon.